everybody to the latest edition of the legends of sports and music this is your host the original great rob silver and today this is going to be a very personal episode for me as i take a look at lana ritchie part one the commodore years 1975 to 1981 now this show will be void of listener voice notes Reason being is that I want to dedicate this entire show to my beloved father Who passed away 23 years ago And of course my mother who at the age of 75 Continues to live Continues to laugh Continues to bitch (laughs) Continues to be ornery But continues to live life despite the fact That several times Throughout the last now let me, I'm going to make sure I get this correct Since she married my father in 1966 So we're talking God, Lord, man Damn We're talking almost 60 years Of her overcoming adversity Overcoming near near death experiences overcoming trauma overcoming pain and yet at 75 she continues to have a great sense of humor she continues to be very frank and despite some partial memory loss and look she's 75 and she was in a coma last fall for a couple of days so her memory cannot be fully there but the stories that i'm going to talk about about Living in the South Bronx from 1975 to 1981 Earlier today I was refreshing my memory by asking her about Some of the events that I will talk about And she remembers everything like it was yesterday as far as back then And it brings back a lot of painful memories And while she verified many of the stories that I talked about today she didn't want to talk about it because it brought back some 
sore subjects and some sore points in her life married to my father. My father passed away in 2000. For those who have been listening to this podcast consistently, you know how I revere my father despite his inadequacies as a father, as a man. One thing he did, though, throughout his entire life, since the day I was born, was kill for not only me, for not only my mother, but for my three siblings that came after me. My parents were married in 1966. They were both 18. My mother was pregnant with my older sister, Margaret, at the time, so they were forced to get married in their own way because both my parents were raised Catholic. Both my parents were scared to death of their parents. And I'll give you a funny story. When my mother found out she was pregnant, she told my father, she told my father they have to go to her mother's house. Well, actually my mother's house because my mother was living with my mother in the Washington Projects. They lived in an apartment on between 102nd and 103rd Street and 3rd Avenue in the Washington, in the George Washington houses, the Washington Projects in Spanish Harlem. So, this was a, my my grandmother was a very devout Puerto Rican Catholic. And so, my parents were forced to get on their hands and knees and beg my grandmother and her husband, my step-grandfather, uh, my mother's stepfather, for forgiveness. My parents had to get on their hands and knees and pray for forgiveness in front of my grandmother and her husband. And then afterwards, after my grandmother gave them her forgiveness they she also gave them their blessing because she told them they had to get married and my parents did get married and on september and on september 10th 1966 they got married my mother was two or three months pregnant at the time when they did get married five months later this would have been okay. They were married in September, so we're talking October, November, December, January, February. Because I never knew the real day that the miscarriage happened, but apparently February of 1967, my mother had a dream. First, she had a dream that an angel came to her and told her that she was going to lose her baby. Then during that week. My father had become addicted to heroin. My father was a heroin addict and he was selling heroin in the streets of Harlem with his gang, the Viceroys. So, my mother was going to places looking for my father. This is February of 1967. Cold-ass winter. It's not like today where we've had very warm Winters, considering where we were in the last 15 to 20 years, we've had a lot of 30 to 50, sometimes 60 degree days in February. Back in February 1967, New York winter was a New York winter. It was Arctic. 
And my mother recalled that it was 5 to 15 degrees that week. Snow, ice, and she's walking around, eight months pregnant, looking for my father, looking for her husband. She couldn't find him. Going through shooting galleries. What's a shooting gallery? A place where heroin addicts go and shoot up together. Shoot up the heroin. She couldn't find him. It got so bad that one day she collapsed, was rushed to the hospital. Her body couldn't take it anymore. My sister Margaret was stillborn. My mother had a miscarriage. The first of two miscarriages she would have. I was born the following year, May of 1968, and there was more drama with that birth because my aunt Elia, my sister, my my mother's younger sister, Elia, was gossiping. She made up a lie saying that my mother was dating her ex-boyfriend, my father's partner in the Viceroy's gang, my father's fellow drug dealing part and also uh, my father and this dude were getting high on heroin together so my sister Elia lied to everybody made up a rumor that my mother's soon to be son me was conceived by that other man why did Elia do that well Elia was pregnant. My mother at the time was 20 years old. Elia was a couple years younger, 18. And Elia was pregnant by my father's best friend, Louis Cocolo, Black Louis. Louis was a very dark-skinned Puerto Rican brother. So to throw off the fact that she was pregnant, because she was hiding it. She was wearing very baggy shirts. And look, ladies and gentlemen, it was 1968. Women wearing baggy clothes were not in style back in 1968. This wasn't the 2000s. And so my sister thought that by, and this is what, not my sister, my aunt, my mother's sister thought that by saying this, this would throw the scent of her possibly being pregnant, people will look the other way. Her family and then my father's mother found out and told my my father, you got to leave that whore, my mother. You got to leave her. Oh, she did you dirty. She slept with your man. Your your own friend. No, fuck that whore. You got to go. And my father was like, I don't believe you. Elia's lying. Mommy, Elia's lying. No, no. My father loved his mother like I love my mother. And my father was torn between my mother telling him, telling him this. And I'm, my mother saying that is a lie. The only man she ever slept with up until that point in time was my father. Because she said she never had sex with, my, uh, with her ex-boyfriend when they were dating. She lost her virginity to my father. And all this back and forth, the families were like, uh, were like, what's going on? Meanwhile, Elia is hiding a pregnancy. And shockingly, Elia gave birth to her first daughter, Stephanie, my cousin Stephanie, on May 6, 1968. I was born the following day, May 7, 1968. When I was born.
my grandmother, my father's mother was like, he better look like us. He better, he better have a, a darker skin complexion. If he's high yellow like that motherfucker, you're gone. Well, y'all know what I look like. <laughs> I'm a brown skinned black Puerto Rican. And I was even darker when I was born. I was like chocolate brown. And when my grandmother, my father's mother, saw me the day I was born, she broke down and started crying. And she started begging my mother for forgiveness. My mother told her, get the fuck out of my face and get the fuck out the hospital. And take your son with you. He's my father. <laughs> wow. And so I was born May 7th, 1968. And we've always joked. My mother and I. And we joked about it this morning. My brother Charlie. Who's, who is three, four years younger than me. Is the spitting image of me. But high yellow. High yellow. We always called him an albino. Because he was high yellow. He had a. Uh, Kinky hair, and he was high yellow. He looked like me, but 50 times lighter. High yellow, red bone. If I was, if he was born, if I came out looking like my brother Charlie instead of looking like me with the skin tone, oh my God. Uh, he, he, the marriage might have ended right then and there. I played Sweet Love at the beginning of the podcast. The first song that Lionel Richie wrote that changed the, uh, the complexion of the group, the Commodores. They went from being a funk group to now a more traditional R&B group. And this song was their first major hit. Their first two albums... While the music was great, great upbeat funk music, they weren't selling. They weren't selling units on Motown Records. Finally, with their third album, Sweet Love came out. It was a massive hit. And Lionel brought the magic with his penmanship. He wrote and sang lead on this phenomenal song. When you, and at the end of the song, Lionel starts preaching. And when I think, and I'm going to read some of these lyrics of this song, I think of my parents' love for each other. When he goes, I know you're searching, searching for a little love, a little peace and understanding. And I know it's been hard trying to find your way, but you keep, but you got to keep on searching harder day by day. And then Lionel. Goes into full preacher mode. Because I want you and you, 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 you and you to stand up. On up, yes, sir. Put a little love in your heart. And a little heart in your love. Together we can make a way. Listen to me. Don't want it too hard of what I'm trying to say. Because it's love. Love's the only way. Nothing but love. <laughs> Sweet love. And throughout the entire 34 years that my parents were married before my father died way too young at the age of 52. It was love that got them through each and every trial and tribulation that my family went through throughout that time span. I will talk more about the Commodores and I will juxtapose it with my parents 
And growing up in the South Bronx as a little boy from 1975 to 1981, the years I was 7 to 13. Up next is Just To Be Close To You, another great love song, another song in which Lionel preaches. And I will talk all about it after we hear the song.
Just to be close to you came out the following year, and it was another massive hit written by Lana Ritchie. And by the way, the producer was the great James Carmichael, who would later produce several of Lionel's iconic songs on during Lionel's solo career. And we'll get to all of that in part two of the Lana Ritchie tribute. This is part one, the Commodores. Just to be close to you, once again, you hear Lionel preaching, and when I hear the song, it harkens back to when this song came out, and the way my father loved my mother, the way my mother loved my father. Those of you who haven't listened to, please, when you get a chance, go to the archives here on the Legends of Sports and Music, and listen to the Michael Jackson Part 1 podcast. And 
Throughout that podcast, I brought up several stories of growing up in the South Bronx and the trials and tribulations that my parents had to go through because of my father's alcoholism. I talked about how back in, and I believe it was either 1973 or 1974, you know, it, it one of those years, I was five or six years old, the, the, the landlords of the building, this African-American couple in their 30s, the Robinsons, hated my mother and hated my father. They hated my parents because, I ain't going to lie, Two, three, four o'clock in the morning, my father would come home drunk and they'd be arguing. And the Robinsons were mad. And my parents were never behind on rent back then because my father, shockingly, was a functional alcoholic. He, Even though he drank and was drunk every night, he never missed work. He loved his job as a juvenile delinquent counselor, despite the fact that my father was a high school dropout. Because he knew this gentleman that worked in the mayor's uh, office, uh, his first name was Harvey, an uh, older white Jewish man, who took a liking to my father. And when my father came out of prison, he helped, first he helped my father get a job as a porter, and then was able to recommend and get him a job with a an agency in which he the agency, the agency was called Wildcat. Their job was to help juvenile offenders get their lives in order. And my father was a counselor. He won awards for this. He was a counselor from, he was released in early 1972. He was a porter at first. I think maybe late 72, early 73, he became a juvenile delinquent counselor and he stayed that for five years um, in 1978 he finally got fired because his alcoholism began to affect his work no actually it wasn't 1977 because I talked about the Christmas in which he had lost his job and my mother got robbed and we almost didn't have a Christmas I talked all about that on the Christmas special tribute podcast that's here on the archives on the legend of sports and music anyway because of my father's connections with this man he was able to get that that job but he'd come home drunk every night two three four o'clock in the morning my parents would would be arguing and the robinsons were doing their best to try to evict my parents but they want time with the rent every month because my father was steady working as a Juvenile delinquent counselor. So what did the Robinsons do? They filed a complaint with child services. And they said that me and at the time. My mother was pregnant. With my youngest sister. So it was sometime in late 73 early 74. Because my mother gave birth in March of 74. With her fourth and final child. Actually, in total, they had six kids, but two were born, stillborn. So her final child, my parents' final child, my mother was pregnant. And my mother's probably five, six months pregnant when this complaint was lodged. And my father 
and my mother were forced to go to family court. And my mother was sitting there pregnant with us, the three of us. I was five. My brother, Charlie, was, wasn't even two yet. He was born 72. He was a year and a half. And my sister was two and a half because they're born a year apart, August 19th, on the same day, 1971 and 1972. So my mother's in court with her babies and the baby in her stomach, me and my two younger siblings. My father, we're in family court. My father takes the stand. I talked all about this on the Michael Jackson part one part, but I want to reiterate this, retell the story. My father was sober as the day was born, was was testified on his behalf and said that despite his drinking, the thing that kept him alive The thing that kept him from going crazy was the love of his wife and the love of his children. And that, if the city took away his kids, he wouldn't last two weeks without time. The judge saw how serious my father was and threw out the case of neglect. Hold on one second. Let me get myself together. When I hear just to be close to you, I hear Lionel singing about unconditional love and the love My father had not only for his kids, but for his wife. Despite my father's shortcomings, he did whatever he could to fight for his children, to fight for his wife. He would kill. He would take a bullet for his family if he had to. And because of the way he defended children, not only his own children, but other children, it is why I love children. It is why I would have died for my son, who died way too young. Why every time I'm seriously involved with a woman, that I have a strong bond and relationship With that woman's children. If she has a child or children. Just to be close to you. I want to. The very beginning. When Lionel's preaching at the beginning of the song. Just like a sweet love. Lionel's preaching preaching and just to be close to you. Oh you know I've been through so many changes in my life. Oh I've been up real high. Where I thought I didn't need anybody. Oh, and then again, I've been down real low where there was no one in my life who needed me. Oh, and I found that material things I thought had so much value. Oh, girl, didn't really have any value at all. That I was a lonely man, a man with no direction, with no purpose, with no one to love and no one to love me for me. Oh, girl, then you came into my life. You made my jagged edges smooth. You made my you made my direction so clear and oh you all woman, you became my purpose. 
my reason for living, girl. Jagged made my jagged edges so smooth. My father had a lot of jagged edges. But with the presence of my mother, his wife, and his children, you couldn't tell my father shit. Because as long as he had the love of his wife and kids, he felt complete. And he knew better than anybody that he was a very flawed man. But one thing that held him together, the one thing that kept his pride intact was the unconditional love his wife and children had for him. Because without them, not only would he be a lonely man, but he'd be a dead man much younger than at 52 when he died. I'm going to talk about stories throughout this podcast that had my mother left my father. He wouldn't last a month. And my father, mother used to always say that. My mother was like, I love that man. If I left that man, he'd be dead within a week. The next song we're going to talk about is Zoom. We're going to play Zoom, and I will talk about it on the other side.
song Zoom brings me back again to my childhood. In the spring of 1977, my mother bought the Commodore self-titled LP, The Commodores. And we're playing the album and there's another song later on that I will talk about that brings me to memories of a Sunday morning. But before we get to that song, I want to talk about the song that we just played, Zoom. That's the song that caught my attention off that album, even more so than Easy, which we will talk about later on. Easy being my mother's favorite Commodore song of all time. I'll get more into that later. Zoom is my favorite Commodore song of all time. It's my favorite Lionel Richie song Period, whether a solo artist or as the lead singer of the Commodores. Another masterpiece that he wrote. Another song that hit hits home. I talked about the owners of the apartment building that my family lived on Walton Avenue. The Robinsons, Walton Avenue in the Bronx. The Robinsons uh, tried to get... Me and my siblings taken away from my father by calling in child services. 1975, we move. My, my father gets an apartment on 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue. I remember the day we moved. I was seven years old from Walton Avenue. As we're packing up, my mother and Mrs. Robinson got into a heated debate and my mother wanted to fuck Mrs. Robertson up and my father held her back. My father grabbed my mother. Now, my father was a former boxer. My father was a very skilled street fighter and a very excellent boxer. While in prison, he won the Comstack Correctional Facility welterweight championship It was a tournament A brutal tournament He knocked everybody out But And even though my father fucked up Many a dude Whether drunk High or sober My mother My mother's anger Is even greater than my father's anger And in future podcasts I will talk about the lengths of my mother's anger, I mean, my father was a fighter, but my mother was a bulldog. And she wanted to fuck Mrs. Robinson up because of the hell Mrs. Robinson had put her through throughout the two years that we lived on Walton Avenue in the Bronx. That day we were moving and my mother just wanted to put her in a hospital. But my father grabbed her and said, no, it's not worth it. We moved to 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue in the South Bronx. When we first moved there in the summer of 1975, it was a nice neighborhood. I mean, it was multi-ethnic. You had Jewish landlords. You had Jewish residents, of course, my family being of Puerto Rican descent, and of course, a high percentage of African-American families living in that neighborhood. 
It was a beautiful neighborhood. It was probably, for the first couple of years we lived there, the best neighborhood I ever grew, grew up in, I ever lived in as a child, economically, the crime wasn't bad. Um, the only problem you had is at night you had heroin addicts out in the street. Um, I remember my mother used to hang out with this drag queen who my father used to always rip into calling him calling him a faggot in the whole nine. It was my father was relentless on that dude, but he the dude was harmless. He loved my mother. He was a drag queen. And they go out and play cards and the whole nine. And my father was always like, Why you gotta hang out with that faggot? And my mother was like, Leave him alone. He don't and my mother was like, What, you rather me hang out with non faggots? <laughs> So, first couple years we lived there, things were not, I mean, my father was still drinking, and he'd come home most of the time drunk, but he was working every day, and we were living in a neighborhood that felt safe. Uh, my father and my mother, my parents, failed to get me immune, how do you say it? Failed to get my immunization together. In 1974, September of 74, my father brought me to the elementary school in Walton Avenue, the, lo the, the nearest one, to get me registered for school in the first grade. The principal told my father, no, can't take your child. Your son doesn't have his shots. And so I wound up getting my shots, but my father didn't bring me back until we moved to 169th Street and Cypress Avenue. And I mean, 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue. I didn't live to Cypress till six years later. So in September of 1975, first day of school, my father, with the shots, brings me to PS88, which was up the block. We lived on 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue. PS88 was on 170th Street in Sheridan Avenue. Up the block. I didn't have to cross any streets. We lived on one end. The school was on the other end. So my father walked me to the school. And my father showed the principal uh, my shots. Everything was together. And the principal was like, all right, good. All right, so we're going to put your son in the first grade class. And my father's like, wait a minute. My son is seven. He belongs in the second grade. The principal was like, Mr. Silva, your son is, hasn't attended school at all. I can't just put him in a second grade class. I got to put him in a first grade class. It doesn't matter how old he is. He never went to school. And my father's like, look, my son can read. He could write. We've taught him at, at home. Why don't you give him a test? And I bet you if he passed that test, he'll prove to you that he belongs in the second grade. My principal, the principal entertained my father. He went and got a book. I forgot what kind of book it was. I think it was a social studies book. I'm not sure. Anyway, he asked me to read. And I read through th three, four pages rapidly. And the principal was like, wow, he reads well. My father, I told you. All right, let me see him write sentences. And I wrote. Now, my handwriting's always been horrible. But I was writing complete sentences. And he, and principal's like, well, he needs work on his handwriting. But. Damn it, he is advanced. He doesn't belong in the first grade. We'll put him in the second grade.
And my father was able to convince the teacher, the principal rather, to put me right away in the second grade class. So I, when I started school at the age of seven, I started in the second grade, which was age appropriate, despite the fact that I never attended kindergarten or first grade. And I was, it, of course, I, I was subject to bullying my first year, but you know what? My father taught me to fight back and I'd fight back. I even got at, the, the teacher would try and ridicule me at, from time. I had a pretty Rican female teacher, Miss Ramirez, who was constantly mocking me because I, uh, the nerve of me, according to her, of being a young Puerto Rican who didn't know how to speak Spanish. Uh, she would talk to me in Spanish, and I'm like, I, I don't understand what you're saying. Oh, how are you Puerto Rican and don't know Spanish? Your parents should be ashamed of themselves. So I told my parents. My mother wanted to go down to school and beat her ass, but my father was like, no, no. One thing about my father, he always came to the school whenever there was an issue with us academically or having to deal with um, disciplinary issues with the four of us. It was always him because even though my father was an alcoholic during this time period, when he was sober, he was much more level-headed than my mother. My mother was like a lion protecting her cubs. She will smack you first, then ask questions later. Now my father. My father was street smart. So he knew how to deal with these type of situations, being that he grew up in a drug game, he was a drug dealer, and he had to deal with conflict without resorting to violence. So... I complained to my parents and my father's like, no, nah, I'm going to go to the school next day. I'm going to straighten that woman out. Don't worry about it, Rob. Don't worry about it. Next day, I'm in class. And in the middle of the day, I mean, you know, school started at 830, 12, 1230. My father walks through the classroom door. And Ms. Romero was like, uh, sir, can I help you? Oh, I'm Mr. Silva. I'm Robert's uh, father. Can I please talk to you? She was like. We're in the middle of class. I said, hey, we could talk now or we could talk in the principal's office. Can I talk to you outside, please? Ms. Ramirez excused herself. You know, all the kids started looking to see what was going on. And my father was talking to Ms. Ramirez. My father was talking calmly as we looked out the window, very calmly. He didn't raise his voice at all. You could tell. We, didn't hear, we couldn't hear what was talking about, but my father was talking and... Miss Ramirez came in the classroom and she told the entire classroom, I would like to apologize to Robert for the way I've been speaking to him. I'm very sorry. Uh, Robert, your father explained to me what was going on, why you don't speak Spanish. I'm sorry. When I got home that day, I was like, Pop, what did you tell Miss Ramirez? And my father said, I explained, I explained to, to, old, uh, to the chick that the reason you don't know Spanish is because we wanted to make sure that you were verbally well, how does my father say? Verbally, uh, shit, uh, verbally, uh, 
I don't know, verbally in tune with the English language. He told Mrs. Miss Ramirez that he wanted to make sure that the same obstacles him and his wife, my mother had, I didn't have because they had Spanish was their primary language growing up in Puerto Rico, coming over here. They had problems learning the language and dealing with it. They didn't want that to be an obstacle for me to clear, for my siblings to clear. That's why they only spoke English only in the, fa in, in the house while I was taught how to read and write only in English. Because my father's family and my mother's family always had difficulty dealing with English as a second language. My grandmother, until the day she died at 81, might have known two my mother's mother might have known two sentences of English. My father's mother died two years prior in 1973. She didn't know any English before she died. Okay. Um, my grandfathers, both my grandfathers, my father's father and my mother's father, barely spoke any English. My parents didn't want the same with us. So they sacrificed Spanish so we could be verbally in tune with the English language. One final example of my father back then stepping up when he needed to talk to a teacher concerning me. Third grade, I had a white teacher, Mr. Ma Mrs. Mackless. Mrs. Mackless gave us a, 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 an assignment, Black History Month, February 1977, I'm in the third grade, for us to write about Martin Luther King and some of the things he accomplished and some of the things that happened to him while he was alive. I remember my parents always talking about Dr. King throughout my childhood. I'm, right now, I'm a few, at that point in time, I was eight going on nine. So I write this uh, five, six page report on Martin Luther King and I show it to my mother and my mother always used to check back then for spelling corrections and she found a couple and she told me to rewrite it because it was sloppy and there was a couple of spelling errors I needed to correct. So once I corrected it, once my mother saw that it was neat, I handed it in to my uh, teacher the next day. The following day we came to school and I'm thinking I got an A, A minus, B plus at the least. She gave me a D minus. And she wrote in big red, she circled. Because I wrote about how Martin Luther King was stabbed. She was like, why are you making stuff up? The class ends. School ends. Because back then, when you're in elementary school, you have the same teacher for the entire day. When school ended, I went up to Mrs. Mackless. Mrs. Mackless... Why did you say I made this up? He was he was stabbed. And Mrs. Mackles was like, I never heard of this. Not my entire life. I never heard of Martin Luther King being stabbed. You made it up. So I didn't argue with the teacher. I walked out. I went home. And when my father came home, 
Then I brought it up to my parents. And I asked my parents, why did they lie to me about Martin Luther King being stabbed? And my father's like, why would we lie to you about that great man? I showed him the paper. And my father was furious. And my father's like, all right, you know what? I'm coming to school the next day, and I'll talk to your principal with Mrs. Macklis there. Once again, my father showed up during the middle of the day. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he was taking time off from work. But my father would take time off from work if it had to deal with his children. Once again, he came around 12, 1230. He came in the classroom, and Mrs. Macklis was like, excuse me, sir, can I help you? I said, I'm Robert Silver's father. I need to speak to you, and I need to speak to you now. Now, Mrs. Macklis was like a lot of white people throughout my entire life. White privilege. They don't like people of other races. My father's a black Puerto Rican just like myself. Telling them what to do. They don't, they, they don't honor that. And she was like, you need to get out of my class before I get you arrested. And my father sat down and said, yeah, go get the principal. I need to talk to you now. Mrs. Macklin stormed out the room. The principal came into the classroom. Um, um, Mr. Silver, can I help you? My father was like, I need to speak to you and her right now. This is concerning my, my son. He handed the principal the report. And he said, I need to speak to you right now because she is claiming my son's a liar and my son is not a liar. The principal's like, uh, can this wait after school? My father's like, no, I got to get back to work. So we need to resolve this now. Okay, class, we'll be back. So the principal, Mrs. Backless, myself, and my father went to the principal's office. Now, just to let you know, the principal was... About 35 to 40 years old, an African-American gentleman, real nice man. We sat down. My father pointed out to the principal, Sir, I know you're old enough to remember that Martin Luther King was stabbed. Look at this. And the principal, who was born sometime in the early to mid-40s, would have been... 18 to 20 years old around that when Martin was stabbed and he was like uh, Mr. Silver I remember this because my parents were crying when they said this on the news Mrs. Macklis how do you not remember uh, Dr. King being stabbed and Mrs. Macklis was like I, 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 I don't remember I don't remember she, he was like that's no excuse how are you going to uh, accuse Robert of being a liar when you couldn't even verify that he was lying. Mr. Silva, I am going to take a look at this paper and I'm going to grade this paper personally. And tomorrow, Mr. Silva, your son will come back with the final and correct grade. The next day, during the middle of the class, the principal comes in and says, uh, Mrs. Macklis, can I speak to you outside for a minute? They go outside. He talks to her. We're looking through the window the entire class. Then we sit back down when Mrs. Macklis comes in. And Mrs. Macklis is like, Robert, here's your grade that the principal gave you. And I 
Forgive me, I forgot the brother's name. He was such a good, good man. And man, early signs of dementia, I forgot the principal's name. I wish I remember his name. But anyway, Mrs. Mackless handed me my paper. When school ended, Mrs. Mackless came up to me and apologized to me directly and said, the grade the principal gave you would have been the same grade I gave you had I not realized that you were telling the truth. The principal gave me a B plus. I showed it to my parents. I thanked my father. And my father's like, man, fuck this dude. You should have got an A for that shit. <laughs> After all the shit I had to go through. <laughs> I was talking about my father and the way he helped me through my first couple of years in grade school. I will talk about Zoom in conjunction with Easy after I play Easy. We'll talk all about it after we hear Easy. I'm going to talk about why Zoom and Easy went hand in hand with memories as an 8, 9, 10-year-old growing up in the South Bronx. Just me. 
both the songs Easy and Zoom speak to the way I felt when the neighborhood I was living in at the time, 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue, in the Morrisania section of the South Bronx, was tra- changing drastically through my eyes. When we first moved to the neighborhood in the summer of 1975, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it was a thriving, middle-class working neighborhood. A multicultural, multi-ethnic neighborhood. Then, beginning sometime in 1976, the Jewish landlords, the predominantly Jewish landlords and store owners, began systematically setting their places on fire, setting their businesses and buildings on fire. Little by little. In the summer of 75, when we moved there, it was a thriving middle-class neighborhood. By the summer of 1977, two years later, every building except the Met supermarket that was directly across the street from my building, my building, and PS 88 down the block was burnt to the ground. The only three buildings still up was the building I lived in, 1296 Sheridan Avenue, Met Supermarket, which was directly across the street from us, and all the way down the block on 170 for Sheridan Avenue, PS88. All the buildings in between PS88 and my building had been burnt to the ground, were abandoned, were rubble. Across the street, the only building standing was Met Supermarket. All the other buildings and stores had been burnt to the ground. Jewish landlords, Jewish landowners, Jewish merchants, because of the rise in Puerto Rican immigrants to the neighborhood, got scared, burnt their buildings down, collect the fu- collected the fire insurance, and left for this and left for the suburbs. Instead of selling the properties, they burnt it down. Those buildings for several years stayed abandoned until former president Jimmy Carter in the nineteen eighties came back came by and started a South Bronx re uh revitalization revitalization program, which at first were Apartments made for low-income families. Well, today, that same neighborhood, the rent is ridiculous. There are buildings around Sheridan Avenue that are now doorman buildings, high rental costs. You have to be rich to live there. This was a neighborhood that used to be low to middle class. Now... (laughs) <laughs> you have to be rich to own one of those buildings. Back in 1977, seeing all the rubble, seeing the debauchery that was going on in my neighborhood, the Bronx is burning. And then seeing my father, who drastically was becoming more and more 
dependent on alcohol. He was drunk six out of seven days. The only day he wasn't drunk was Sunday morning. More on that in a bit. Because I'm going to talk about Zoom first. I was hating it. Because soon after, my father would lose his job in the fall of 1977. So my mother had to go back on welfare while my father collected unemployment. We were barely scraping by. And so as a young boy, I began to daydream about a a life that could rescue me from the abyss that I was living in with my parents and my three siblings. When you look at the song Zoom, this is why Zoom hit home to me. Because the words there spoke to what I wanted. I'm searching for that silver lining, horizons that I've never seen. Oh, I'd like to take just a moment and dream my dream. Oh, dream my dream. Whoa, Zoom. I'd like to fly far away from here. Where, I'm, where my mind, oh Lord, is fresh and clear. And I'd find the love that I long to see. Where everybody can be what they want to be. I like to greet the sun each morning. And walk amongst the stars at night. I like to know the taste of honey in my life. In my life. This song was singing to what was the hell I was going through, watching my parents struggle and watching us go from doing okay as a middle class family to all of a sudden being in impoverished conditions. Well, I've shared so many pains and I've played so many games. Oh, but everyone finds the right way somehow, somewhere, someday. Whoa, Zoom, I like to fly far away from here where my mind can see fresh and clear. I wanted an escape from the hell that I was living as an 8, 9, 10-year-old in the South Bronx. It would only get worse. It would only get worse. October of 1978, my father had been out of, out of work For over a year Matter of fact Soon after we were evicted And thrown into the streets October of 1978 A week or two afterwards My father got a job But we were forced to live with my Aunt Elia The same woman I talked about earlier And her family Until my father could find another apartment And thankfully my father in a four to five week period Found A new place for us to stay And it was luck because he started working again And we moved to Westchester and Elder Avenue Elder and Westchester Avenue And I remember when we first uh, Moved there My father's working now and now things are getting a little bit better. But my mother stayed on welfare because she realized that 
we were better off with the two incomes. My father's uh, bi-weekly paycheck from his job and her monthly stipend and food stamps from welfare. And this goes back to easy. I was, even though my father got a new job, he did not leave the alcohol alone. He was still getting drunk six out of seven days. The only day he didn't drink was Sunday morning. Sundays. Because why? Back in 1978, liquor stores were closed on Sundays. Today they're open. They, they've been open forever. But in the 1970s, liquor stores were closed. I believe it was the Blue Law. Liquor stores, barbershops, laundromats, flower shops, they were all closed on Sunday. Supermarkets closed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's why I'm easy, uh, I'm easy like Sunday morning. That's why I'm easy, I'm easy like Sunday morning. When I hear easy and I hear Lionel singing, I'm easy like Sunday morning, which I believe was the biggest hit ever by the Commodores. Massive hit. Sundays were our were the best days of the week because my father was completely sober. We'd watch baseball together, the fights on television. Anybody knows me knows I'm a boxing historian and baseball and boxing were my first loves. Sunday afternoons, my father and I would sit in the living room on a 13-inch black and white TV and watch the Met game, the Yankee game, and the fights. And it was the best time of the week because that's when my father and I bonded and he was concise and clear. There was no alcohol clouding his judgment. And that's where I was under the learning tree. As a boxing historian and my father was teaching me the intricacies of a, of, a, of a fighter. We'd watch a fight and my father would point out why this guy was so great. Why this guy was so underrated. It was a joyous time every Sunday. Sundays were the easiest day of the week. That's why that song Easy speaks to me. Easy like Sunday morning. I want to be high, so high. Just like Zoom. I want to be free to know the thing. I want to be free. So free, yeah, doom, doom. Man, what's the next song? Man, this has been an emotional podcast, bringing back uh, all these memories, both great and heart heartaching. Oh, man, Three Times a Lady. I got a lot to say about this song. Um, we, We're going to hear Three Times a Lady, and I've got a lot to say about this song on the other side. Come 
and I heard three times a lady right then and there my father said man this is the song that defines his love for my mother his wife and many a time years later when my parents would hold their Friday Saturday night parties where we lived in the Millbrook projects where they'd bring friends over and I'd play all the slow jams in my collection Whenever Three Times Lady came on, they would make sure to dance, whether my father was under the influence or not. When I hear this song, I always think of my, not only my father's love for my mother, but how much I love my mother. When Lionel Richie wrote this song, he wrote it as an ode to his mother and his wife at the time, Brenda. It was a loving tribute to both his wife and his mother. You look at the words. You're once, twice, three times a lady. Yes, you're once, twice, Three times a lady And I love you I love you Thanks for the times that you've given me The memories are all in my mind And now that we've come To the end of our rainbow There's something I must say it out loud Now When that day comes if I don't pass before my mother, and for God's sake, I hope I outlive my mother because I take care of my mother. And without me, none of my siblings are going to be able to do what I do for my mother. Right. So I believe God knows this and he's going to make sure that until it is her time and it wasn't her time last year that. I am in her life to take care of her because no one can take care of my mother like myself other than my father who died 23 years ago. The day my mother does pass, this song has to be played 
at the memorial, at the funeral, when we are driving to and away from the funeral. When you hear, and now that we've come to the end of our rainbow, that always signaled to me the end of a life, the end of her life. Lionel writing this about his mother, the end of her life, and me thinking, man, this is how it's going to be when my mother dies, the end of our rainbow. Now, the end of her rainbow with my father ended on July 30th, 2000, when he passed away at the very young age of 52. I've always said there is a God because God knows that if my mother would have passed before my father, my father would have lost his fucking mind. And like my father told the judge back in 1973 when they tried to take his kids away from him. That he would die if he didn't have his kids or his wife in his life. Without my mother, my father would have felt lost and helpless. She was his rock. She was the best thing of his life a life full of sin with no doubt a life full of regrets a life full of shenanigans that he pulled and he engaged in throughout the 52 years he lived on earth but i hearken back to what i said earlier he always had the fact that he had a beautiful wife and four kids that he helped raise that he helped bring into this earth as his how do you say it? Redeeming quality as something he could own, as something that he had over many of his brethren, over many of the people that he grew up with who died young of heroin overdoses or went to prison for many years, whether it was drug dealing, murder or whatever. He had something that they didn't have. He had something that he could own, that he can claim that he did better than anybody including his own siblings his own siblings all had failed marriages uh relationships with their kids that did not go well despite my father's battle with alcoholism and then later drug abuse his children never stopped loving him back in the mid to late 70s Whenever my father would come home from work, whether it was on 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue, whether it was in Walton Avenue, or whether it was on, in Elder Avenue, soon as you heard the key turn at around 6 to 6.30 at night, all four of us, me and my three brothers and sisters, would run to the door screaming, Poppy, Poppy's home, Poppy's home. And it used to irk my mother. But on the other hand, it brought a smile to my father's face because he walked through the door and he saw the love of his kids in their eyes for him. And he returned that love back. That made him feel 
like a real man. And he owed all of that to my mother. And he always said that song was what he felt about her, that she was three times a lady. And my mother is three times a lady because she has survived so much hell in her 75 years on this earth. And she is still as ornery and as hilarious and as matter of fact as ever. All right, let's see what the next song on the playlist is before we continue. Man, talk about a trip down memory lane. Oh, still. We will talk about still after we play still on the other side. Just a moment away And I'm without you once again You laughed at me You said you never needed me I wonder if you need me now We play the games that people play We made mistakes along the way Somehow I know deep in my heart Remembering the pain, if I must say, it's deep in my mind and locked away. But then, most of all, I do love you. Dreams that flew away 
Back in the late 70s with my parents always at odds because of my father's drinking and the financial situation they would find themselves in. Because between 1978 and early 1980s, my father working, my mother on welfare with those two incomes coming in. And ladies and gentlemen, yes, what my mother did was illegal, but fuck the American government. They rob us. So... If we could find a way to get around the system, get around the fucking system. And that's what my parents did. My father lost his job in May of 1980. And whenever my father was unemployed, like back in 1977-78, the drinking would get worse. It would be worse. And 1980 was a year of hell. For my entire family. The minute my father lost his job. My father's drinking got bad. And on a couple occasions. My mother left my father. One time. My mother stayed away for an entire week. 
And whenever I hear the song still, that song was very reminiscent of what my father looked like, what my father was going through when my mother left him, along with the kids. And, and I, the, the one time she left for an entire week and the man just sat at the kitchen table depressed. Lady, morning's just a moment away, and I'm without you once again. You laughed at me. You said you never needed me. I wonder if you need me now. My parents, when they would argue, they would get very personal. My father would talk about how... Whenever he was working, when they were arguing, oh, you, you'd be nothing without me because who's going to take care of your kids? Who's going to take care of our kids if you throw me out? Or when my father wasn't working or drunk, my, my mother would dig deep down and go, you'd be nothing without me. You'd be dead if I left you. You cannot live without me. I mean, their arguments got real personal and only because my father had this huge, huge, huge thing about striking a woman. He would never, he, he swore to my mother the first time they started getting serious, back when they were 15 years old, that he would never lay hands on my mother. And he never did. And I'm not going to lie, my mother, on a few occasions, Laid hands on my father I will talk about one of those situations That almost ended up Pretty uh, I don't know Put it this way I'm surprised the murder didn't occur that night now, I'll talk about that in a future podcast But My mother threw punches at my father My mother threw drinks at my father and my father would either walk away or run because my father had anger. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. I have been hit by two women that I was involved with in my life. And both times I had to run away because there's an impulse when you get hit to hit back. But I learned from my father never to strike a woman. So the two times I was struck, I walked away. Because, fellas, once you put your hands on a woman, regardless if it was a retaliation, you're, the, you're in the wrong. The police come, they're arresting you. So one night, it got real ugly between my parents my mother had thrown a drink at my father and my father exploded, ran off. And then when my father came back, my mother had packed her bags. Well, not her bags. She packed a bag and left. And despite my father's anger at the drink being thrown at him, that's the love of his life. That's the only woman he ever loved his entire life. My father slept with two women in his life. When he was 14... No, I'm sorry, when he was 13, when my grandfather gave him 
a prostitute for his 13th birthday, which my father did the same for me. Uh, listen to the Tina Marie podcast. I go all through, through it in great detail. And my mother. My father couldn't look at another woman. Now, he would flirt with me just to prove a point to me and my brother. Hey, if I wanted to, I could, I could, I could get with a woman. But it wasn't in his heart. It was just him proving us a point. You had beautiful women throw themselves at my father. My father loved my mother. You could have shit. Uh, Edith Chacon or well, my father loved Dionne Warwick. Dionne Warwick could have been butt naked in front of my father. His love for my mother would overtake that. It it would it it didn't matter. It was my mother that he adored with everything. And so when she left that entire week, she left on a Sunday night. She didn't come back to the following Saturday. He sat there in the living room, in the kitchen. Just in shock. And my siblings and I, we were like, Poppy, when is mom coming back? And he was like, just just leave me alone. And he didn't drink for that entire week. He was too depressed to drink. You laughed at me. You said you never needed me. I wonder if you need me now. So many dreams that flew away. So many words we didn't say to people lost in a storm. Where did we go? Where'd we go? Lost what we both had found. You know we let each other down. But then most of all, I do love you, Donna. Still The following week They got back together This was right after my 12th birthday And the following Sunday Was Mother's Day And They I know they made They had passionate Makeup sex Because my father told me To make sure To keep My siblings And me Away from their bedroom Because they were going to be In their room all day No disturbance I know the heat was on that and the, 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 the passion was uncontrollable that day. Whenever I hear the song still, I think about the spring of 1980 and how my father was completely heartbroken thinking that he possibly had finally gone too far and lost the love of his life. Okay, let's see what the next song is. Talk about going down memory Oh Ceylon We'll talk about this after we play Ceylon On the other side Ceylon down the line By half a mile or so don't really want to know where you're going Maybe once or twice you see Time after time I try to, to hold on to what we got But now you're going 
you're gonna say, Lord. I gave all my money and my time. I know it's a shame, but I'm giving you back your name. Guess I'll be on my way. I won't be back to stay. Good time. 
Ceylon was another massive hit written by Lionel Richie and produced by James Carmichael. A country song from a traditional and once funk R&B band. Lionel sings his ass off in his song and you hear the despair in his voice about the end of a marriage. I'm looking for a good time. Good time. Whenever I used to hear this song back in 1980, 81, I would worry that my parents would one day get divorced. I mean, the thought crossed my mind all the time because of the constant bickering, my father's constant battles with alcoholism, my mother getting less and less patient with him. But something greater than both of them kept them together. I always said from when I was in my teen years, years after this, 16, 17, 1984, 1985, I always said what I told my mother that time. I said, oh, you ain't never leaving him, huh? No matter what he does, you're not leaving him. And my mother looked at me and without saying anything, her eyes confirmed what I believed. No matter how dire his drinking got and then a few years later, it would result to cocaine abuse and heroin abuse. That was the love of her life. She loved my father with every fiber of her being. To the point where when he died on July 30th, 2000, she never even looked at another man until this day. For 23 years, my mother has been celibate. She has not seen any other man. She, does, she can't look at another man. After my father died, my son, who was eight years old at the time, asked my mother, you think you'd ever date somebody again? Words of an innocent eight-year-old. And my mother told my son, her grandson, your grandfather gave me a ride that no other man could even come close to matching. And then she told me later on, how could she ever love a man as intensely as she loved my father The hell that they went through The great times and the good times No other man on this planet could bring that to her And she's not going to settle For something that can't be as intense As what happened between her and, her and my father, her husband And to be honest with you She could never love a man like she loved my uh, father If a dude Was ever interested in her He'd be battling with a ghost that he could not beat So She never entertained it Never Never She'd be sitting downstairs in the park In the playground Whether it was Millbrook in her Early to mid 50s Or when 
I moved her to uh, Harlem in 2005. Any dude, any older guy, any uh, elderly man that stepped to her, she'd be like, leave me the fuck alone. (laughs) That's how intense her love for my father was. When I hear Ceylon down the line, back when I was a little boy, those fears, though, of them ever separating used to haunt me. Guess I'll be on my way. I won't be back to stay. I guess I'll move along. I'm looking for a good time. Good. Well, sail out, honey. Good times never felt so good. My mother, despite her frustrations with my father, never came close to separating herself from him. That was the love of her life. And to this day, she loves that man. Damn. They met each other 61 years ago. 61 years later, despite him being gone in the physical form for almost 23 years now, that love is as strong, as as intense as anything. My mother has had a few memory lapses because of being in a coma last fall. But one thing she will never forget is my father's presence the love she had for my father, the image of my father. When she was in the hospital bed, there was a picture of my father on her bedside. When she stayed with my sister for two months, late October to late December, before she came back home to stay with me right before New Year's, right beside her bed that she was sleeping on in my sister's apartment was a picture Of my father In my mother's bedroom There's a shrine to my father My mother temporarily forgot The existence of my son Her oldest grandson Because the pain was too much to bear Being that he passed away at such a young age That will never be the case With my father There'll be times when I walk past her room and she's talking in her sleep and she's saying, Silva, Silva, which is what she called my father because he's Robert C- Roberto Sr., I'm Roberto Jr. And so as not to confuse, she'd call him Silva and me Robert. Now, today, <laughs> a lot of people call me Silva, which I, I love because it's, it's, I feel like it's an ode to my father without them knowing that they're paying tribute to my father. Sail On, one of the great country songs ever written and sung by a soul group. And always brings back the fears I had as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old boy thinking, man, what am I going to do if my parents ever got divorced? Okay, let's see what's up next on the playlist.
man, this this podcast is bringing me back to memory lane. Okay. Oh, we're going to get spiritual here. I'm going to play Jesus and love. Jesus is love, and I'm going to talk about my parents' relationship with God, the Catholic Church, and why they never tried to get us to attend church. I'll talk all about it after we play Jesus is Love.
Lionel wrote a phenomenal gospel song in Jesus is Love. Once again, this song brings me back to when it first came out back in 1980. And I wasn't an overly religious child. My my mother was a devout Catholic. So was my father, despite his tendency to drink and curse and act a fool. But he was a devout Catholic in his own right. My parents didn't force us to go to church. They didn't go to church. Sundays, they relaxed because that was the day. Like I mentioned on the Easy Song, the only day my father didn't drink because the liquor stores weren't open. And we'd sit back and we'd watch the fights and the baseball games. And I remember Sunday mornings, we'd have our own um, church-like service in the house by watching the animated Claymation Davy and, and Goliath series and the dramatic religious series Insight Sunday mornings on ABC, WABC Channel 7. That was part of our Sunday ritual each and every Sunday back in the mid to late 70s and early 80s. My parents would go to church twice a year. Easter Sunday and Christmas Mass, Christmas Eve Mass before midnight. Those were the two times they'd go to church. But my mother always had portraits of Jesus Christ. And it's funny, people talk about what Jesus Christ looked like. We all know he was a black man. But my mother had a portrait of a Puerto Rican looking Jesus. And my father always said that Jesus Christ was a Puerto Rican, not a white man. Because my father would always say, how many dudes named Jesus have you met that were white? <laughs> so henceforth, Jesus was Puerto Rican. And my father, he tried to claim every light-skinned black dude as being Puerto Rican. That was just the way he was. But when you hear the song, Jesus is Love by Lionel Richie, you hear the upbringing that his family had with him in the Baptist church. And I've had my reservations, especially as a child, of whether or not God and Jesus existed. But too many things have happened in my lifetime to know that that is not the case. He does exist. God and Jesus does exist because I mentioned this on the Michael Jackson podcast back in the summer of 1980. My mother was in the living room by herself and she went to turn out a cigarette. At the minute her head turned, a bullet came wheezing down from upstairs. You want to hear the entire story? Michael Jackson part one. I talked all about it, how I could have woken up an orphan because if my when my father came home, if he had discovered that my mother was dead, he would have killed the people who killed my mother, whether it was an accident or not. And so I'd have a father in prison 
and a dead mother. You can hear all about what happened with that situation, how she escaped death, and how my father handled her almost getting shooting, almost getting shot on the Michael Jackson Part 1 podcast. I also talked about during that podcast how my father during the same time collapsed in the street. Summer of 1980. I thought he was dead. Less than three hours later, after being taken to the hospital, he walked through the door like Jesus had risen from the dead. I was shocked. I, was, I sat there in amazement like, nothing can kill this man. I know that God and Jesus exist because despite the fact that my son died at a very young age, at the age of 29, he was suffering from addiction and they stepped in and ended his pain. They took him out of his misery just like they did with my father who was 52. Dying of throat cancer and suffering. It is why my mother miraculously survived being in a coma last September. After she had a seizure and kidney failure. Because there is no way in the world I could have handled the two people I love the most. My son and my mother dying in the same year on top of. My long-term relationship ending in the middle of those two situations. Jesus is love. He won't let you down. When you hear Lionel sing those words, you feel not only the love he has for Jesus Christ, but the love that he has for the fact that he has come to the conclusion that Jesus does exist, that God does exist. And you could tell from the passion he sings this song that he has seen it with his own eyes. And yes, I have seen it with my own eyes. Things are not happenstance. Things do not happen by coincidence. For a long time, I was, uns I was very unsure, but when I look back at my soon-to-be 55 years on this planet, and I saw the predicaments that my family got out of, it had to be higher powers that intervened. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't by pure luck. It was divine in nature. And so I will spend the rest of my life knowing that whatever happens with me, with future relationships, with my nephew, with my sister, with my brother, with my mother, that it was meant to be and it was ordained by powers higher than I could ever understand. Next song up is Lady, You Bring Me Up When I'm Down. And we will talk about it as this also pertains to my, mo my father's love for my mother and why that love 
continued to help him during the dark days of 1980. Oh, 
On October 27th, 1980, the building, the tenement that we lived in, 1133 Elder Avenue on the corner of Elder Westchester Avenue in the Bronx, was burnt to the ground. We were living in slumlord conditions. There was no hot water. We had roaches and rats running amok. And the landlord had abandoned the property. The entire building was roach infested, rat infested. Nobody had heat. Complaints to city government by the tenants had gone unheard. Nothing was done about it. So eventually, what I thought happened was several residents of the building lit the place on fire. The place was burned to the ground, and it was cold that night. It was... I remember my my father waking me up violently, saying, you got to get up. And I'm like, Pop, I'm cold. I'm, I'm sleepy. We got school in the morning. He's like, motherfucker, get up. The place is on fire. And we were all... we we. He got my mother and my me and my siblings out of the building, and the place was burned to the ground. We lost everything. I had a cherished autograph that Roberto Duran had signed for me a year earlier, June of 1979. My record player and record collection of Off the Wall Teddy Pendergrass, TP, all the Commodores, Donnie Hathaway, Stevie Wonder albums, all the La Lupe albums that my mother cherished, the, her Billie Holiday albums that she cherished, my father's Temptation albums and Tito Puente albums, all of that burnt. The first helmet, my father, football helmet my father ever bought me, and, and baseball glove and baseballs. My baseball card collection, all of that burnt to the ground. All our clothes burnt to the ground. The only thing we had were the shirts and jeans and shoes that we had on. Red Cross came and put us in a welfare hotel on Fox Street in the South Bronx near Longwood Avenue, near Hunts Point. We stayed there until April when we finally were placed in the Millbrook houses, Millbrook projects. We got ourselves an apartment in the projects. When you're in a fire and you're put in a welfare hotel, you get first priority to get public housing. That's what happened with us. My father was crying because all the pictures he had of his beloved mother were gone. All the pictures that he had assembled of his family, of me and his wife as babies, were all burnt to the ground. But like my mother would tell him, oh, and by the way, my mother got violently sick and was forced to be hospitalized for the second time in her life with double pneumonia and it was once again for the second time in 1980 
death was knocking on her door. She was very ill. And somehow, some way, she survived. Now, I only missed a week of school. I went and got a train pass from junior high school 123 that I was attending at the time. I was in my, uh, I was in the seventh grade. I was 12 years old. And so I started going to school by myself via subway. And then eventually I was, uh, able to come to terms with losing all what I thought were valuable items but something my mother told me while she was in the hospital when I went to visit her because you know I was complaining to her how upset I was that we had lost all these things in the fire and she told me you didn't lose her you didn't lose your life you didn't lose your father's life and I'm not dying even though I'm sick that's my mother's words she told my father the same thing And so when I hear lady You bring me up when I'm down My mother brought both my father and I up Because we were down We were down We had lost all these things But we Didn't see the bigger picture The bigger picture was Items like that can be replaced And a lot of the pictures that we took My grandmother Had Copies Because a lot of those pictures were taken in my grandmother's house And so My grandmother Had copies And she gave my mother After she was Released from the hospital All the childhood photos Of me The baby photos of me That we thought were lost forever They had duplicates My grandmother had duplicates And she gave Her daughter my mother her photo album Which we still have to this day And there are several pictures that I've posted over the years On my Twitter feed Of those pictures Through the years I went And I bought some of the vinyl that we lost um, The Billy Holiday and La Lupe albums I would Over the years when In my 20s Buy two or three at a time and give them to my mother for a wedding anniversary gift, Mother's Day gift, birthday gift, etc. Things can be replaced. Valuable things can be replaced. Lives can't. We got out of there alive with all six of us intact, even though my mother did suffer, was severely ill with double pneumonia for a while and had her hospitalized for a couple of weeks. But we made it through and we got out of a bad situation. And we were able to finally, a month before my 13th birthday, get into an a, a, a stable housing situation. Because, look, living in the projects, no longer did my parents have to pay for heat and electricity. Utility bills were gone. For the first time... We got a house phone in several years. The last time we had a house phone was, I think we lived in Walton Avenue. We never had a house phone 
when we lived on Sheridan Avenue or when we lived on Elder Avenue. We always had to go use a pay phone. My parents couldn't afford a house phone. We were able to get a house phone because my father was working full time again, this time as a porter. Back, things come full circle. He was working for the city as a porter and my mother was still on welfare. And being that my mother didn't put my father's name on the lease, the rent was damn near non-existent. I think my mother's rent for several years was $125 to $150 a month because of, because in New York City housing, your rent is based on your income. And since my father wasn't on the lease, the lease was tied into my mother's name. And according to them, she was on public assistance. She wasn't making any real money on public assistance. The rent was based on her public assistance. And so it was $125 to $150 a month. So my parents could afford to have a house phone. My parents could afford now to buy us nicer clothes. There was extra money that we were able to use for things that we didn't have in the past because of the other bills that my parents had to pay. Things worked itself out after years of struggling on Walton Avenue, living in Sheridan Avenue, and living in Elder Avenue. From 1981 on, we lived in the Millbrook Projects, the same projects that my parents lived in when my father passed in 2000. I will talk more, and I have talked about life in those projects in past, pro- in past podcasts, and I will talk more in future podcasts. I wanted to give you people that are listening a look into my life as a young boy growing up in the South Bronx in impoverished situations, in a situation where it taught me to be strong, it taught me to have intestinal fortitude, and it taught me the existence of God, the existence of familial love, the existence of a father who would die for his family. The existence of my mother's strength and how she was able to overcome all the obstacles and hurdles that were placed not only in her marriage, but in raising her children. Ladies and gentlemen, next week I will go back to taking voice notes. Next week's episode will be on Casey and JoJo. Their years after Jodeci broke up, Casey and JoJo had a tremendous five, six year run as a, as a brother duo. We'll talk about that next week. I will play several voice notes from the listeners. I'm finishing up the podcast with one of the greatest infidelity songs of all time. 
This song came out in 1981, and it was the first of many great songs throughout the 80s of infidelity. There were a lot of infidelity songs. I've talked about this in the past. I'll talk more about it when I do the Bobby Womack podcast in about a month. I want to thank all the listeners for listening. I hope this podcast didn't put you in a mood of sadness. I hope that this inspires people, that are, especially the young people that are listening, to show that no matter how dire the situation is, tomorrow's another day and there's always hope. For a brighter future I'm going to leave you guys With the great Oh No by the Commodores The last hit they had Before Lionel Richie went on To have an immense And incredible run As a solo artist One of the biggest artists Of the 1980s And we will cover his entire Phenomenal 1980s run When I do the Lionel Richie Part 2 podcast Down the line Until next week when we talk Casey and JoJo, everybody out there, continue to always be blessed and be a blessing. Just read